It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hey, 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 thanks for joining us. Real quick promise, please find us and follow us at Mistreat Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We have curated content on Pinterest and Flipboard. Check out our channels on TikTok and YouTube. And if you would be so kind, like that famous prince we all know, please show us some love and rate and review us. Positive vibes only, right? But first, Champagne. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for tuning in to Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast. I'm the less funnier one and interesting half of us, so my apologies you're stuck with me this time. But for this new year, Larissa and myself are working on some great shows of royals, scandals, and true crime adjacent. In the meantime, please tune in to our classic shows that were originally recorded on this show's predecessor, Sip and Shine Podcast, that led to Larissa and myself meeting. This show is featuring the audience favorite, Jess, or the unfiltered blonde herself. But either way, cheers to the new year. Here's to those who've seen us at our best and seen us at our worst and can't tell the difference. Hi, Jess. Thank you very much for joining me back. It's been a few minutes and we're about to talk about a guy that your first response was, wow, he's really hot. (laughs) Well, because we were just talking about Al Capone, who I wouldn't really describe that way. So you sent me that. I mean, this guy's young. He looks like, wow, I'm just looking at these new pictures. And I mean, yeah, he is hot. Fuck, man. Yeah, he is a hottie. I'm down with it. And it's really sad because the guy went missing. Yeah, and yeah, he was just like a really hot dude who was, if he lived nowadays, I think he would have been probably on social media with some really cool pictures. He would be that (laughs) hot granola guy. Hot granola guy. He would live in like Silver Lake or Echo Park if he lived in LA. Yeah, he's not your type because you like your Persian husband, but... (laughs) He is, he is, I like dark haired guys. I'm not really into like blonde guys or guys with like light skin because I, I mean, no offense. I'm like literally a corpse. I'm Swedish and German. So I'm like as white as they come. But no, he, I actually, I did make a a comparison to even like JFK Jr. But this one picture of him that everyone should Google is where he's, he's like smoking a pipe and looking out a window. He ki- he kind no you know who he reminds of this picture and I, I hope that I'm saying the right person is it James Franco Yeah I would think so too Don't they look alike in that picture Yeah that one picture but the other ones I think he looks really hot He looks really more hot. like near maybe like an Ashley Hamilton Oh yeah 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 But like a bad boy there's one picture where he's like blowing out a gun which I wouldn't like not really my jam but his hot face looks hot in it Speaking of Abercrombie and Fitch, he could be an Abercrombie and Fitch model. <laughs> Completely. And his hair is like... Like tousled. Nowadays, men would go to a salon yeah. for that, but his is just sun-touched. Like, we're both like... This guy's like long gone, and we're both like spooning <laughs> over him right now. <laughs> I love it. All right. Sean Flynn was the son of Errol Flynn. And I don't know if you're that familiar. I always pick these episodes, funny enough, because I just assume you're, you live in California, like you know all of the old Hollywood stories. 
Yeah, I know all of them. I'm totally just because I live near a cemetery. Carrie doesn't mean I know all this. Like they don't come visit you. Errol Flynn was a hot, this hot actor back in the day, and there is a scandal about him. Maybe one day I'll cover it. But it was a rape trial. Oh, lovely. He liked his women's young. He likes the girls, and so he had this son who is really freaking hot. We both agree. Super hot. He kind of dabbled in acting for a little bit, kind of at the push of his dad, because his dad kind of thought he would resurrect his acting career when he was dried up. But he was like, I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to become a combat photographer in Indochina. Maybe not like DeAndre's husband, but maybe like a little bit. <laughs> okay. I had to get Sounds that good. in there because that's the only thing I saw in common. I was like, how can I make a segue like this? <laughs> the remains of his body, however have never really been found, but there was a recent stories probably in the last, I'm thinking like two years, but I think it's been a lot longer. It's probably five to seven that they found his body by these amateur hunters. And there was this whole big drama, but we'll get into that. Errol Flynn is a screen legend, an icon whose film roles as the swashbuckling man of action and romantic lover remain unequaled. He tried to live out this image in his private life, but died a victim of his own debauchery. How did he sink so far? His fall from grace is the source of endless myths, many of which can now be unraveled. At the age of 50, he was found dead of a heart attack by his 17-year-old lover, Beverly Adland. Sean Flynn was the son of Errol Flynn, a Golden Age Hollywood actor, best known for playing Robin Hood in The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. England! In the gallant days when history hung on the flight of an arrow or the slash of a sword, when feudal barons ravaged the countryside to live in pomp and splendor, when one man alone dared challenge the might of his country's oppressors, Robin Hood, outlaw of Sherwood Forest and his stalwart band, robbing the rich to feed the poor, ready to fight for king, for country, or for maiden fair. Now this forest is wide. It can shelter and clothe and feed a band of good determined men, good swordsmen, good archers, good fighters. Are you with me? It's Errol Flynn as Robin Hood. Olivia de Havilland is... His mother, Lily, was also an actress, and he was born in May of 1941. He's probably a tourist, I'm thinking, so that's your dude. Yeah, he's a, he's a tourist just like me. And was raised mainly by his mother since his parents separated when he was really young, and he had briefly attended Duke University. He'd been left $5,000 in his dad's will to assist with college education, and both of his half-sisters got 10000 which is... What the fuck? Yeah, I don't know why, but that's kind of cool that the girl did get more. Yeah. Hopefully that was for their education. So following his parents' lead, he starred in two films... Hello? Hello? Oh, Berlin. Uh, this is train commander Lieutenant Novak, train 349, Berlin to Frankfurt. We are now departing at... Uh... At 1916, over and out. Before finding his passion in wartime photojournalism during the 1960s. He'd also starred in an episode of his father's television show, The Errol Flynn Theater, at the age of 15. Cute kid. I would have never taken advantage of him. I'm not, like, that weird, but he was cute. <laughs> I'm not that weird. It's not like you're in a Lifetime movie. No, but he was a cutie. Sean parachuted into combat zones with the U.S. troops and visited. This is you're about to hear another reason why I picked him, and visited war zones in Israel, Cambodia, and Vietnam on assignments. Oh, he went to my homeland. Did that's another reason why I picked him. (laughs) 
I love it. In Vietnam, he would make his a name for himself as a high-risk photojournalist. His photos were featured around the world in Paris Match, Time Life, and United Press International. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Walter Mitty. Have you ever seen that? It just no. reminds me of the Time Life. Cameraman Sean Flynn, who filmed these scenes, later went on patrol outside the camp perimeter. He recorded this description of what it was like. I'm with the 5th Battalion of the Mobile Strike Force, approximately one kilometer south of Ben Hutt Special Forces Camp, which has been under siege now for several months. The March of 66, he was wounded in the knee. He was ambushed by the Viet Cong in April of 66 while on patrol with the Green Berets and Chinese mercenaries called the Nungs. I'm hoping I say that correctly. Sean had to fight his way out along with the soldiers, the M16 he was carrying at the time, because the Green Berets just gave him a gun, apparently, so it wasn't the first time he's ever shot one. And June of that year, he left Vietnam for Paris to star in his last movie. It was released as Five Ashore in Singapore. Now, wait a minute, Brown. I don't want a bunch of dumbheads. I want Marines who know what they're thinking about. There's a difference. I translated it because it was in French. But that's kind of weird. You're leaving a combat zone like, oh, I got to go shoot a movie. I'll be back. <laughs> Seriously. In Paris, no less. BRB, guys. And after his acting job was completed, he was back in Vietnam by the end of the year. He was credited with saving an Australian platoon from being decimated by a mine, and he identified it while photographing the troops near Vung Tau. After saving them, he went on to do a parachute jump with the 101st Airborne Division in December. So it's kind of crazy. He was probably completely an adrenaline junkie, and I think some of these people would take more and more risks when they were out in the field. Mm, totally. 1967, he covered the Arab-Israeli War. Oh, I'm sure that was pleasant. Yeah, and he returned to Vietnam in 68 after the Tet Offensive. In September 68, he was working as a cameraman for CBS when he was injured slightly by the grenade fragments while shooting a battle between U.S. and enemy forces 85 miles south of Da Nang. He went to Cambodia in early 1970 when news broke of North Vietnamese advances into that country. Do you ever watch Travels with My Father? With No. Cambodia. I don't know much about this country, but we've been warned it's going to be a lot tougher than Thailand. And if our new guide, Puppet, is anything to go by, I think it will be. Let's just say that Puppet isn't as sweet as his name might suggest. Certainly not one for small talk. Or any talk. Oh my gosh, you have to watch it. He's a comedian from Britain, and it's so funny and charming me and jody i probably said that incorrectly we laugh all the time we love it and his dad got a doll that kind of looks like him in singapore and he brings it everywhere what? and his name's winston and he's like oh it's the son i that i never got to have and he'll make comments like he did the last season in la and his, he took his dad to naked yoga oh, and he and God. his dad's in there comparing He's like, do you see how big that guy is? Look at him. He goes, that's nothing compared to yours. And he's like looking down at his son's penis. Oh, my God. Poor guy. Yeah, I totally paraphrased there. But you got to watch the last one. I totally paraphrased. But he's really funny. Oh but they God. went to Cambodia from Thailand. And Thailand's like, yeah, Cambodia is like the Wild West from Thailand. So disappearance. His fearlessness would eventually catch up with him, though. Dana Stone was another outgoing wartime photojournalist. He was best known for his work on CBS and the Associated Press. 
Stone became a combat photographer and went on missions with the Green Berets. In 1970, both men waited in Bangkok, Thailand with other journalists for the Cambodian government to grant entry into the country. Sean and Dana left the Cambodian capital on April 6, 1970 on two motorcycles having turned down the typical limousines abandoned by the tourism industry that journalists used. They were headed to a press conference in a different city, but after the press conference, the pair heard there was a Viet Cong checkpoint not much further down the highway and wanted to get a first-hand look. One of their colleagues took a photo of the two as they set off for the checkpoint. They were never seen again. What the fuck? Sean was 28 and Dana 31 when they disappeared. As you can imagine... Okay, let's see here. Oh, this... With the two of them on the Yeah, look at the last photo and see that what you think. That is so eerie. Um, they're so both so the were they like, oh, I'm going to just go like up ahead and go look and then I'll be and, right back? Wow. Okay. Okay. As you can imagine, there are many different theories of what happened to the two photographers. Sean's mother, Lily, never, never stopped looking. In one article, she said she was, quote, exhausted. She exhausted her finances in search for her son until her death in 1994. Sean and Dana's photographer friends and colleagues have also taken trips back to Cambodia to look for them and three dozen other journalists who lost their lives during the war. As far as I can figure it, this is where that car was stood across the road with a car clawed up and the, and the uh, Japanese in it. So it must have been that that last piece of footage was about, about where that truck is down there, about 200 meters down the highway. And that's where supposedly... Then takes a, a long look to a long lens. You don't see Dana again, but you do see a figure in a white shirt or shirt behind the back of the of the car across the thing. And here we go, Cambodia coming down the height. Apparently, Sean and Dana were among the first to go missing. One of their colleagues said they didn't know how dangerous it was. At least 37 journalists went missing during the 1970 to 1975 during the war. That's crazy. Okay, so here's the different theories. So. Sean and Dana were most likely seized at the checkpoint and handed over to the communist guerrillas. The Viet Cong handed him over to the Khmer Rouge for execution, possibly with other reporters crudely. Some believe, with little proof, that the men were held hostage for years before being executed, and others believe they were killed much quicker. Millions of people were killed as a result of Cambodia's communist war, and the likelihood of finding their remains specifically is very slim. That's so sad. In 2010, amateur bone hunters Britton Keith Rotherham and Scottish-born Australian David Macmillan found remains in a mass grave in rural Cambodia thanks to a local man who said he witnessed the execution of a tall, blonde foreigner and claiming the blonde foreigner had to dig his own grave. What the fuck? The DNA test proved that the jaw and the femur bones the bone hunters handed over to U.S. officials were not Flynn's, but there is controversy about how the amateur bone hunters dug up the remains and potentially destroyed and kept some evidence. Okay, that's fucking creepy. The, okay, so this is the quote from, oh, from the evidence. Okay. Okay, so Mr. McMillan claimed elsewhere that the four-month search had been partly funded by Flynn's half-sister, yet the excavation of the site has been criticized by a colleague of the journalist who has led the search for them almost ever since they went missing. Tim Page, a British photographer celebrated for his work in Vietnam and other conflicts, said he believed a number of other foreign journalists may have been executed and buried at the same time. 
Mr. Page 64, who is featured in Michael Hare's classic memoir of the Vietnam War, Dispatches, said he led an excavation of the same site last year and found glass vials, bone fragments, and teeth ah, that he handed over to the Pentagon's joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, JPAC, along with GPS coordinates. He said it was vital, it was a thorough examination of the site to be conducted as local people claiming it had held the remains of more than one foreigner killed by the Khmer Rouge. I have had hundreds of people contact me over the years about Sean. I am always interested in what they have to say, said Mr. Page, who now lives in Brisbane, told the Australian. The problem is with the story. Anything is possible. But there is a very strict procedure to be followed when digging at a site of possible human remains. And in this case, that was not followed. It was not a forensic dig. They used an excavator and uncovered a full set of remains, which they removed from the site. What the fuck? I sent you um, some photos of their killing fields, and you'll see kind of how things are over there. I sent you, just sent you a few. The, you can still go over there and see some of these areas. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. They're still there? Mm-hmm. It's literally like... I mean, this is awful, but it, it reminds me of, like, the Holocaust. It's literally, yeah. it's like a pit full of skulls and bones. Fuck. What the hell? This is insane. So, there, I mean, that one picture that looks, like, semi-recent. I mean, I don't even know how many people this looks like. But it's a lot. No, that's why I said it's so, why don't we know more about this? Yeah, that is some shady, shady, shady shit. Okay, so it says, since they were amateurs who were privately funded and not connected to either government, it's not known what all they uncovered at the mass gravesite. Officials with POW slash MIA excavated the same site again later and found more human remains. Those remains weren't Flynn's or Dana's either. What? There are theories that include an intercepted radio message stating that Sean and Dana were alive. There are other stories of tourists seeing a man who looked like a movie star years later also. Another theory states they were executed at a Cambodia high school used as a torture and execution center, but it wasn't being used until 1976. Torture was a big thing, too. You can see a bunch of videos and photos of that. So, yes, closure, well, it's kind of an anti-closure, but his mother never knew what happened to her son, but she had him declared dead in absentia yeah absentia mm. i th- i don't absentia? i can't say it any more than you can yeah in like 1984 she had him declared dead but mm. a little side story when i was looking up some of the information for this because it was already prepped and then last night i was going through trying to find anything to kind of fill in details at the time i read this story and i'm kind of kind of take some excerpts from the article his father was broke and he desperately hoped his son would kind of help his career obviously we just saw pictures of his son he was kind of a hot dude right (laughs) yeah and so he refused these attempts and he told his dad to go to hell and so he's 16 years old and he wrote his father a letter and he said i just want to be with my family and i would rather work on a Mm -hmm. construction site than go to hollywood and he goes i would rather just make 50 dollars a day as a cement mixer seem more appealing than following the example of his father whose personal life descended into drink drugs and three failed marriages In October 1942, he was arrested on charges of having sexual relations with two underage girls.
The arrest made headlines worldwide and briefly relegated news of America's progress in the war from the front pages. The evidence presented in court against Flynn centered on the testimony of two girls, 15-year-old Peggy Satterley and Betty Hanson, who was 17. Neither have spoken since the trial. After 50 years, Betty Hanson agreed to break her silence. She met Errol Flynn at a studio party soon after she'd arrived from Nebraska. Even today, Betty is afraid of being recognized. He was sitting at the edge of the pool, and we were frolic frolicking. The girl and I were playing, normal, having fun. And I heard him say, oh, a wildcat from Nebraska. Because, yeah, that, that's what he put on me. And I didn't like, I didn't care for that. And then he kept looking at me. Throughout the trial, Flynn maintained that he had not violated either girl. But in court, some of the prosecution's evidence against him was devastating. Ted Tomey has studied the court transcripts in detail. There's no question that these two, Beverly, uh, Peggy Satterley and uh, Peggy, Betty Hanson were examined by uh, police physicians. They were bruised and their skin was torn. If convicted, Flynn faced a jail term of up to 150 years. At the trial, he, he paled somewhat. That wonderful tan did start to pale, and he was obviously nervous. And he had said that if they nab me, I'm getting out of the country. He had made arrangements to be flown out of the country. He would never go to jail. I think it really worried him sick. Flynn engaged Hollywood's most notorious troubleshooter to defend him, Jerry Geisler. Geisler set about mercilessly smearing the reputation of the two girls. He destroyed these two girls. He trashed them. He was also, he used investigators, and he, he learned more about Betty Hansen than, than the prosecution did, more about Satterley, knew more about their trashy backgrounds, more about the fact that they were bad girls. As a result, the jury of nine women and three men could see no reason why this beautiful man should have to go to prison for possibly 150 years on these, because of these two trashy girls. And so they acquitted him. So in 1958, you wrote this missive or this letter. And, but by this time, his son was in prep school in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. The father's career had dried up, and he had this TV show, The Errol Flynn Theater, which was shot in the UK. The letter, dated April 4th, 1958, calls his mother the best mother that I could ever want before tearing into Errol. The letter reads, I'll be back in 10 weeks, and I hope to get a job with some construction company. It pays about $50 a week, which is very good for this type of work. This is all I want to be happy, and I know it will work. If father and MGM want me to do a picture, they can all go to hell. I just want to be with my family. And another letter, isn't that sweet? And another letter sent 10 days later, Sean says he would be happy with a job loading cement. These letters were sold by a private collector from the Flynn family. Uh, Bob Livingston, which was a spokesman for the auctions when they were sold, said, 
Sean Flynn was no doubt under pressure to do a film with his father. By that time, his father had lost all his money and had been sued by one of his co-stars and had been forced to finance his films himself. Errol Flynn was an alcoholic. He'd married and divorced a 20-year-old cigar store girl, Nora Eddington, and he was in big trouble. The pressures of being the son of a famous person are well-documented, particularly from that area. It can't have been easy. Even though Sean protested at 16, he did eventually appear in a couple small movies, which we talked about. Which Another item which they sold at auction was a red silk banner with gold embroidery, which Sean sent his mother on that final trip around Asia, which he never returned from. Don't you love I bring all these stories to you? <laughs> you give me so many more reasons to go down like Google black holes. <laughs> but um, where can people find your podcast? Yes, my podcast is The Real Housewife of the West Side, which you can find anywhere you find the Sip and Shine and Moms on the Rocks podcast. And on Instagram, I am at Real Housewife of the West Side. Thank you very much. And don't go check out checkpoints in war-torn cities. Yes, it's stay away, stay away. Ciao, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. <laughs> I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Let's play a game. All right. On the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it. Just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, it's me again, and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now. Just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss Intrigue Pod. Follow us on Pinterest and Flipboard, where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty, chronicles of interesting events in history, and of course, true crime. Lastly, check out our YouTube channel because everyone has one, right? That features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out MissDeedsAndIntriguePodcast.com. But we don't have a complaints department, just to give you a little heads up. The podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast host or guest co-host are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinion of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, Misdeeds, or Intrigue Podcast, or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only, and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue Podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube, or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, 
please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com. An immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.